0: All right, folks. Welcome back. This is the Morning Brushback. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined by two Chicagoans today. First, uh, our predictable co-host, Bobby Stevens, is here. Bobby, hello. Hello, Dan. And then, Robert, we've got another Chicago guest. I'll let you introduce him. Who do we got
1: here today? Uh, We've got the owner and creator of At Catcher's Capital, uh, Mike Falsetti, former pro. Uh, how many years, Mike? Five years. Five years. Five years in Indie ball. So we had to bring Mike on because, as the podcast catching expert, I needed a little backup. So I had <laughs> I had to bring Mike on. Mm. You know, we had to diversify a little bit.
2: Uh, I know to help. I'm glad to help. Yeah,
1: so, yeah. I, I, it's hard to carry the weight of the catcher of the catching world on the morning brushback all the time. So yeah. the no, band- you're right.
0: It's tough for sure. Thanks for, thanks, thanks for coming on, Mike.
1: Bobby always yep. needs the help, uh, <laughs> as, as you know. So, uh, But, Mike, all right, I want to jump in. I, so I started a, a mini catching Twitter war a few months back, um, hmm. but I want to jump into immediately is the one-knee catching fad that is sweeping the nation, uh, catchers at all levels, putting one knee on the ground because they're too lazy to squat on their feet. Uh, where are you at, Mike? How do you, how do you, how should we be catching? How should I, as a soon to be men's league, professional <laughs> catcher, be setting up?
2: Um. Overall, the ideal works because it makes it easier to block the ball. I'll a ball sure. right. Okay. You're already down on the ground. Um, A big reason why they're doing it as well is for the catcher themselves to feel lower to the ground. If you feel lower to the ground, you're going to work more underneath the ball as you're catching the ball, and it makes for uh, more of a chance to catch it cleanly. Um, But I believe that the number one thing it does is reduce range for a catcher um define define range range is moving left and right basically uh i've done it myself i i never did it i was always a traditional stance guy uh my whole career um that's how i was always taught i was always taught there's never such thing as a wild pitch it's always a pass ball so i need to be in a position to be able to move anywhere anywhere or anytime. Um, but what that does is it pretty much puts you in a position, pretty locked position, you're going to stay there. Guess what? It is pretty easy just to put your chest on the ball. Um, my opinion, especially for younger catchers, or in your case, uh, 40 and over almost.
1: <laughs> you got got uh, the, the nerve of some guests, I tell I- <laughs> you.
0: When you're just, like, fitting pipes and laying concrete for a living, you age rapidly. <laughs> the <so>. knees go.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But uh, you catchers growing up, I firmly believe you should you should learn how to block out of a two-leg stance and then maybe go to the one leg, but you should never start at the one leg and go to the two leg. Um, you're kind of skipping parts there and pretty crucial foundation movements it takes to be able to create angles and control the ball and even to be able to react out of the pitcher's hand. Like, if if you start a kid with a one-knee stance and you're teaching them that's the right way to block, there is no force of a a reaction to have in their brain, like kind of when you're hitting. But you have to react. If You don't have to necessarily react if you're just sitting on the ground waiting for the ball to come to you um yeah that makes sense by of steps and it's messy it's messy but they do have a point i just don't firmly believe it's that important
0: well so i saw uh and this was someone another catching guy on the twitter twitterverse tweeting this out and be like yeah this is why one knee blocking is kind of rough and they showed a guy who was you know was a, a catcher he was into a left into a righty and i guess they were throwing us uh you know, like a left-handed slider into him, right? Yeah. So he's kind of stuck in that quadrant. Guy throws on the other, the wrong side of the plate. Catcher just has, like, no chance to block it. There's so, sure. I mean, everything you said with it reducing your lateral mobility, it, it's like like 100. It, it seems like it's objectively true. Like, th- yeah. the guy just had no shot of blocking that ball. And so I guess in the big leagues, most of the time that works. Like, guys have pretty good command. Like, they don't miss the wrong side of the plate that much, but they certainly still do it. Oh, yeah. So.
2: And, and nine times out of ten, that pitch that's way over there, you're not going to block it. But the ones that are being exposed on this Twitter are the ones that
0: – That was blockable, the one that I saw, yeah. Mm-hmm. probably
2: would be blocked uh, in a traditional stance. Granted, there's some ones right in front of a catcher going down to two knees that probably they miss that they never miss if they're on one leg. Mm-hmm. what do you what do you want to prepare yourself for each pitch that's kind of the the question you got to ask yourself and even these coaches what what do you want to teach like what do you what are you gonna what do you have more importance on
1: on that it just place? feels like it, it, Wait, it just <laughs> feels like i don't mean to cut you off mike it just feels like trying to teach like when you teach a kid to have two swings like hey here's your 2-0 swing and here's your two strike swing it's like that's, it's such a hard thing to do in, ge- hitting such a hard thing to do in general.
2: That's the best way you could put it. It's, it's not, it's not as drastic as a swing, I think, because you're literally just putting your body in a position and waiting for something to happen. You don't necessarily have to react as much when you hit or as when you catch it as compared to when you hit because you know what's coming. Um, and you're. But, yeah, there, it's, it, it, the overall idea is putting your body in a position to have success on what is most likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know what's most likely to happen doesn't always happen. Um, and yeah. in my opinion, you, you, you have to be prepared mentally and physically for everything, at least the more difficult one, uh, rather than kind of limiting yourself to being really good at a little amount of thing. Yeah. Okay. That's, so the one, so one knee, I mean, this
1: was like my, my, when I was on Twitter doing like jumping in the catching Twitter world, uh, I was, I was talking about more framing. We'll get to it in a second, but it feels like being on one knee is beneficial. If you're trying to get underneath the ball with nobody on base or with less than two strikes, because with two strikes, I feel like you, with the drop third strike you have to be able to keep the ball in front Mm -hmm. and with guys on base you have to be in a position ready to at least get out of that stance to throw so it feels like being in the traditional catching stance would benefit the catcher more 90 percent of the time I mean how often are you catching and there's nobody on base and there's less than two strikes I mean it's It's, it's, it's it's a decent amount but it at the same time, like, the most important time that you're catching, it seems to be a traditional stance, is makes a ton more sense, whether there's guys on base or whether you might potentially have to block the ball. Like, you don't have to block the ball when it's a 2 count. If the ball's in the dirt, you could try and scoop it, use your hands,
2: whatever ball at, goes, goes. Not in the Atlantic League. Or you could steal first base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would like to not talk about this stuff because it's never making it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, was, I mean that's so. Does
1: that change your catching? So if you can steal first base, does that change the philosophy oh, and then let's negate? Stick,
2: let's stick to one knee for now. But yeah, steal yeah, first base. Yes, that completely changes everything because you have to block literally everything. Uh, but besides the point, it's all situation dependent, um, and you there. The big the the issue with the one knee stuff isn't in the primary stance when there's nobody on base in less than two strikes. You could do whatever the hell you want, basically, as long as you get some concrete things like you're low and you're underneath and you're catching the ball, beating it to the spot and everything. But it doesn't necessarily matter what position you put yourself in because there is no repercussions. Um, And your only responsibility is to catch the ball. And that brings me to my argument about the robot umps. Um, but it's, like I said, it's situation-dependent. There's there's some situations where there's a runner on base and you know he's not going to steal, and you have a pitcher that pretty much has good control. You you know where the ball's going to go, uh, so you can't afford to go into that one-knee stance. Um, but you got a guy throwing 95 with an 87-mile-an-hour slider that he just learned the other day. Mm-hmm. You, you, don't, you can't trust it like that. The pitcher doesn't even trust it like that. Um, well, Dan, so, do you have a preference
1: as a as a pitcher? Like, do you notice the catcher's stance at all? Not really, no.
2: Yeah, actually, I, just, did, I did have one pitcher. His name is Dylan Thompson. He was a righty running sink guy, um, and he wanted me – he asked me to be on my, my left knee, I believe it was, just to kind of have more of a visual of that kind of downhill running angle of his sinker. Um, and I did it. I didn't really care because there really isn't much of a difference, in my opinion, as long as you got hands and
1: <laughs> the carrot
2: juice. And orange juice? Carrot juice. Carrot juice.
0: How do you feel about carrot juice, Mike? Does it keep your knees I,
2: healthy? I, I – aye. Honestly, didn't know they even sold it in bottles. You got to get well, out of your suburban bubble.
0: Juicing it yourself <laughs> is a is a fool's errand. You have to take like an arm's worth of carrots to get this amount of juice. I
2: thought this was a the coffee show.
0: I have that too. We got a. Coffee. I got water. I got carrot juice. I got a <laughs> coffee. These are all very specific yeah. beverages. I ran to. I stopped at Costco on my way back yesterday, and man, really stocked up. So. Mm. So you, you haven't found much of a preference from pitchers as far as stance? Like they don't seem to care that much?
2: In my opinion, I don't think the, the pitchers care as long as they're getting strikes. Yeah. As long as they're not losing strikes, they they don't care.
0: So let's, let's summarize a little bit. So for a coach or some players who are like, yeah, I've been seeing this one-leg stuff. It's been interesting to me. Should I be teaching my 14-U team this or should I be learning this? What uh? What would you say your action items or your thoughts are for the youth game with one uh, leg
2: stuff? I would say go ahead, learn about it all you want, but as for the one knee uh, secondary stance or primary stance, um, I wouldn't put too much value on it until hand-eye coordination is elite. Um, your understanding of each situation of the game is undeniable. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, any stance, when, if we're just talking about receiving from a stance, your hands trump every, every single uh, technique, I should say. Um, and if, if you're starting a kid at a one-knee stance developing blocking – habits, I think it's going to be less productive than starting them in a, a two-knee two stance and making them learn how to tra- just traditionally block and then kind of form it however they want to form it. Because there's a lot of hybrid guys, too, that start in one knee in the big leagues and then they end mm-hmm. up finishing on one knee or start with both knees up and then finish on one knee. Yeah. And that's how I kind of used to be, too. I would kind of just let it react. and. There's, there's no real one concrete way of doing it, but they're kind of making it out to be this one knee or two knee. Um, but a lot happens. There's a lot of gray space in the middle in this whole conversation.
1: It feels gimmicky, like when we when I see some of the younger guys that
2: – It's not – I mean, there's results. There's results at the big league level for sure. In yeah, I'm time. saying though it
1: feels gimmicky at like – like we've got a couple catchers in our program that have either a different catching coach or I have got guys on the fall team like from different programs that I see and they're they're younger kids they're 14 15 and they're on one knee already and kind of how you said it's like they need to have certain elite aspects of their game before they can before they incorporate you know maybe something like this which would be a higher level way of doing it which I don't think is like as drastic as something maybe like a swing change or maybe a pitching mechanical change.
2: I mean, it's but kind it's, of like yeah. – it's like your hand's higher in your stance or something mm-hmm. like that, kind of. But I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: I just think it's, it's it feels like, you mean, like you're sending your son for a one-on-one or if you're sending your kid to Dan for pitching and he's got him doing all these different types of drills. Like, you wouldn't start off with weighted ball stuff with a kid who's – just learning how to pitch most kids are just learning how to catch like like be a true catcher you know when you hit the age where you actually have a position as opposed to being like 9 10 11 where okay well third inning now it's tony's turn to catch you know when you start getting 12 13 when you start developing into like a positional player Uh if you're starting there it feels gimmicky when there's probably more baseline attributes that they can be acquiring just as a catcher like how to get your chest over the baseball to keep it in front you know how, exactly. footwork on the throw to second base stuff like that
2: See, i would say the one the one time i really did teach it to youth or or kids that i don't necessarily wanted to teach it to are the ones that aren't flexible enough to feel low in a stance basically like their their legs just don't work well enough to feel low enough to feel underneath the pitch. And that's kind of what you need to do in order to be able to see it well and react well. Um, And the one knee stance kind of gives them a little bit more flexibility within their stance to get into the better position. Granted, they need to work on their athletic ability and their flexibility in order to reach their potential. But that's one situation where, this one leg thing works um, with, with the youth kids.
0: Go ahead. So So my, my big question is, so that's obviously one of the recurring trends or upcoming trends in uh, the baseball world with catchers. What are some of the other ones that you think are new edge kind of things that young players and parents are probably like, Oh, maybe I need to be learning that, or is this a good thing? I mean, I'm sure there's other ones out there. So what are some of these other sort of controversial or like you said, kind of new fads that are maybe good, maybe not as good, maybe should learn, maybe not learn?
2: Um, Well, I mean, I think the most apparent one besides the one knee stuff is the receiving techniques of basically the overall idea which they are right, is that it is proven that moving the ball back towards the zone works for getting strikes called. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is how much do we move it or how do we move it? Um, <clears throat> so there's a, every, every different technique in the book, even in the big leagues today, but um, you're seeing more and more the catcher move the ball no matter where it's caught, all the way back to the middle of his chest, no matter where it's caught. Um, I used to be close to that guy coming up through college in early pro ball, um, and I was pretty good at it. I would move the ball. I wouldn't really care about how much I was moving the ball. Um, The only thing I'd care about is redirecting that ball's path to directly where I want it to go as quickly as I possibly could. That's all that you really need to do. And no matter what uh, technique you're using, it kind of forces that issue. Um, but as I went on through my career, the more I moved it, the more prone the umpire was to say, hey, what the hell are you doing, Mike? Like, I literally just saw you move the ball off the plate and back to the black. You just told me it was there. And I started thinking about it and – these umps that I was talking to were no joke either. I remember one was a ex uh, big league ump for about 10, 12 years. I f- uh, forget his name, but he was kind of the one that sparked my uh, kind of deeper thought into the technique. Um, but yeah, the biggest, the big thing years ago was the stick and hold—to so catch the ball, keep it exactly where it's at. That was all you'd really be told. Get your thumb under it, stick it. Get your thumb under it, stick it. Be strong. Uh, And that doesn't really work that well. you got to think about it a little bit more. So what what they call it, one of the techniques is called flexion to extension, and the other one is extension to flexion. Um, One's where you start with your arm close and you finish it extended, other vice versa. Um, All about working through the ball or letting the ball's momentum help your glove move itself um so the big thing is that austin hedges uh the guy austin barnes he's a big guy doing it is the amount of space that they're moving the ball is pretty ridiculous but austin hedges last year showed results he was the number one receiving catcher according to one of the things, baseball savant or whatever. And he was one of the guys that moved it a lot. Uh, and he pretty much boosted up um, in the in the leaderboards from the year before just by doing that. Um, I don't think it happens as clearly as people think it does. I don't think the improvement happens as clearly as I think it does. I think there's a lot more that goes into uh, – a catcher's receiving is in like even controlling his pitchers, knowing how to call a game, the umpire, um, and all that. But when it comes down to it, yes, I believe moving the ball helps you with your ability to catch the ball efficiently and not let the ball control you. But I think it does take away from the visual deception that you want to create from, or for the the umpire, for yourself, I should say. So
0: is it part of the catcher's job to deceive the umpire?
2: Yeah, of course. <laughs> Who's,
1: according to who?
0: The umpire? But I mean, then I do mean, they distrust you, and then they want to, like, screw you over?
2: I, if you see a board – if you get – a shot down the line hit off you, and you saw it go foul. But that guy said fair. What are you going to do? Or you saw it go f- fair, but he said foul. What are you going to say? You say, "Oh, he's fair." Go ahead, keep running. <laughs> well, I feel like the umpire. I, I feel like the trying to deceive them. The I'm,
1: the confident umpires
2: I'm really good. Yeah, put it that way.
1: But I feel I'm like not, confident umpires don't. Uh, if you're confident, you're not necessarily looking at the glove or just watching the ball. If, you're, if you're probably questioning yourself, yeah. then it can go one of two ways. You could either feel like this like, – I'm sure – and I don't – you know, I've never caught in a game past 15 years old. Uh, I got I to assume that the umpire, if he doesn't like you taking the ball from six inches outside and moving it back to the middle of the plate, it's going to say, hey, stop moving the ball. I'm not giving that to you. Yep. Like, if you're blatantly trying to make him look stupid, because that's what it really would do, right, is if you if you take a ball that hits the dirt, and I've seen kids do this, like, basically scoops it, takes it right back up to the middle of the zone. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to try and make that guy look stupid, he's probably going to take offense to that. Exactly. If you're just doing it on borderline pitches, which is what almost every pitch in the big leagues is, because they're so good at locating. I mean, if you're taking pitches that are – an inch off the black and moving them to the middle and you're doing it every time and you're consistent with it, you're probably get a few more strike calls. You might not, you might late in the game, you might not. He might say, I'm not like, I'm not looking stupid. Like you're not going to, you're not going to get everybody all over me when you're blatantly moving the glove. Yep. I think it's got, I think it's probably the conversation you have with the catcher, which is like part of catching, right? It's like the relationship you have with the, with the umpire.
2: Huge. It's in, and now, with COVID and everything, it's pretty much being taken away from the youth, at least, with the guys behind the pitcher. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like exactly what you said. If you do it consistently on the borderline pitches, not even just on the borderline pitches, on pretty much everything, just to, especially if you're going to be moving it that much, it needs to be a consistent, like, over-deception. I, I don't even know what you want to call it. Um but I'm not necessarily component to that being the finished product. Um I believe that really, really helps you be able to beat the ball to the spot. Doesn't matter what position you are, you should be able to do that. You should be able to on the opposite side of wherever the ball's going and be able to catch it going back on that same path. Um by far, that's the most important thing you have to do when you catch or when you receive uh, and be able to, quote-unquote, frame well or be able to get pitches. That's how you control the ball. Um, and that really, really forces the issue. But you don't need all that movement in order to create that angle in order to have success doing that. Um, and that kind of goes into how what I teach, and there's uh, people call it a bunch of different things. It's the – I call it the hybrid or the turn, or some people call it the wrist roll. Um, it's basically, it's it's using all of that movement before you catch the ball and then stopping it once you catch the ball and basically moving the ball with only your glove rather than your arm. That's kind of like the Yasmani Grandal or uh, Yachty in his prime or even... As, bunch of them um so dan do you guys like pitchers
1: pitchers are weird we know this oh yeah like guys guys have they're guys they're have specific,
2: you need them you need them they're <laughs> yeah they're a
1: necessary <laughs> eagle but uh pitchers always have a preference right like uh there's always one starter that has the backup as his personal like david ross was always john lester's personal catcher dan like what? Why would you – like, what are those, I guess, staples of the guys that you like throwing to and that separated them, I guess, from a bad receiver? Or did you, did you ever feel like somebody was a bad receiver uh, when you were playing?
0: Uh, there was a point where I didn't, I didn't know what a good or bad receiver was, and then I figured that out, I think, my second year in pro ball where I got this older guy – it was from like Panama and he was just like sticking balls down and in. Like I was throwing fastballs down into lefties at like 93 and he was just like making them strikes where I was like very sure they were like, I knew they were going to be balls essentially. And I'm like, Oh, that's a strike now. And then I like realized that they were better catchers than I'd been throwing to my whole life. Um, and after that, you start to know the difference, but then once they all become good, relatively good. And there's still always differences, even at the end in the Atlantic league. Um, But the Atlantic league, they were a lot more consistently better. Um, And then at that point, you just want the catcher that understands you. So my last season with long Island, there were two catchers. uh, Both had cannons for arms. One understood me and just how I pitched, which was be aggressive early, go in, go up, bounce breaking balls. Don't ever really go away. Don't really go down the zone. Uh, so we could work together pretty easy. The other guy had like, no, idea, it's like, he never paid attention and we also didn't work together that much. So he was always like fastball alone away, fastball alone away. I'm like, no, that's bad. That's bad for me. Like he just like called the exact opposite game. So that at that point, it's not like really his fault. When we talked about it, but he still just like, didn't get it. He just was like, kind of going back to his default rather than I think really taking time to like, think about what I was good at. So at that point, you just want someone who's on the same page with you who understands. Because otherwise, you start to second-guess yourself. You're like, well, may- maybe he's got a reason to go away. Like, maybe he knows something I don't. And that's that's dangerous thinking for a, a pitcher. Because even though catchers, there are many catchers that call a great game, it's they still you're the, you're the final say. And then, yeah. you
1: know. You want
2: them to call your game.
1: Essentially, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because catchers go through like this progression of like what's important about their position as they get as they get older. I feel like when you're younger, you usually put the kid who's strongest with his glove like he he can catch the ball. Anybody that's pitching, you know, he can handle the hard throwing guys at the youth level. And then when you get a little bit older, you get the kid who's like you want your catcher to know what's going on on the field because, you know, realistically, he can see everybody. So you want him being the loud guy that can yell out where the ball is supposed to go. And then as you get into, as you get into like 13, 14, you want the kid with the strong arm who can throw guys out and make them throw all the way to second base. And it kind of goes through high school. And then once you, once you kind of get past the point where everybody on the field basically knows where they're going, knows all the situational stuff, then you want a guy who can essentially call his own game and, and command like the pitching staff. Like, well, catchers yeah, kind of go through this whole, like, cycle of what's important like, from their position.
0: Yeah, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like, you're not thinking about enlightenment when you don't have shelter. You know what yep. I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, when you're 100%. When you're young, you just want a catcher who doesn't, who can just, like, keep runners from stealing, like, insanity. And then you want them just to be able to block the ball most of the time, right? And then, you like, then it just... So it's all those sort of things first, the big physical things. But
2: I th- I think a really good youth catcher changes the game more than any other position, maybe besides a pitcher. Besides a pitcher, number two. Yeah, pitching. I
1: mean, if you're and, in, at
2: the youth level, it's like a mega. singles. Yeah, singles and triples. You got a real bad one. It's going to be a long day.
0: Yeah, there's there's a really big gap on the continuum. Yeah. Of, of what happens? Yeah. I'd say the difference between – an a, like, if everyone has an average catcher and you have a great catcher, it probably doesn't change the game as much. But, mm-hmm. like you said, the swings from one pole to the other are huge. Where oh, yeah. it's, it's so it's
1: so hard to watch when a kid can't block the ball. Yep. Ugh, yikes. It's not even blocking the ball. It's when you – like, Just, if you get to the level of or, 13, or one, 14, 14, and he can't uh, make yeah. that throw. Yeah, it's bad. Like, yeah, when singles or triples, it's a tough – it's a That's long game, and it's like there's nothing you can do as a coach, right? Which is why I said you kind of you kind of throw the kid back there who can handle like the most important need of the of the age group, which is if it's throwing down to second base, like you need a kid that can throw the ball and potentially get somebody out. Yep. I mean, it, it, regardless of whether or not he's ever caught before. Uh, so on Periscope, we've got <laughs> we've got a question, which is uh, I'm gonna paraphrase a question about it's about knee (laughs) savers so i mean knee savers were a huge thing when uh i grew up with yeah i was gonna say they're a huge thing does that are knee savers a thing anymore
2: yeah i see them all the time they're there they still haven't changed the logo's still the same too um
1: dan have you ever used knee savers have you ever tried them once and i was like this is magic oh Uh, it's so comfortable they're great Oh, it's one of the most comfortable one of the most comfortable things I have
2: ever used. So I grew up with them, and played with them until my rookie year actually. My rookie year was my pitching coach Billy Brick. Um he's a hometown guy and he goes to me one day, he goes, "Falsetti, I goes, you look old." Go, what do you mean? I'm a rookie at this time, 22. <laughs> It's like you're wearing the knee savers. Like who who told you you deserve the right to wear those things? And he just kept it was it was constant. One day, he said the baseball gods are gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you. They haven't given you the right to do it. And I never wore them since. That was it. It was more. That, it's all. Like, <laughs> if you want advice, if you want them, go ahead. I never thought you looked soft, but actually, you look a little soft. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, do they, do they prevent you from doing anything you need to do?
2: Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely,
0: yeah. Well, I figured that you'd be a little higher that they might. No?
1: Hmm.
2: Uh, it depends on what slot you put them in. If you put them all the way down, there really isn't that much of a difference. Um, mm. They're so co- I could do the whole podcast from knee savers. <laughs> <laughs> They're so
0: comfortable. Yeah. That like, was how I felt when I wore them the one time. Are, are they less popular now? It doesn't seem like you see many guys wearing them like you like 10 years ago. I, think
2: less, I, I couldn't tell you the actual stats, but I see them a lot less often now than I did when I was growing up playing.
0: Well, the question is also, does it actually save your knees? Because there's, I mean, like dissonance in like the fitness community about whether, you know, some people are like, oh, full squats, more pressure yep. on your knees. That's not, I don't know that that's necessarily true. And I'm not sure that like full squatting Olympic. I mean, you're taking your knees through full range of motion. The shear forces change significantly. I can't quote it. I used to be able to, but the people who were, the, were to advocate for like half squats, like in the gym, because it saves your knees, were like those arguments weren't very strong. But again, I'm yeah. little. I'm a little rusty where I could debunk it and, and spend I
2: th- research. I, th- I think it boils down to flexibility once again. Like if if you're Flexible enough to get all the way down in your stance without having your knees hurt. You don't need knee savers. If you're trying oh, to get, F. literally can't get down and you need support, they might help.
0: I want to rebrand them something. I mean, cause millennials are so soft, like such a soft generation, like <laughs> millennials, millennials are generation knee. Just something's like, look, we made these for you. Like you guys cry a lot. You whine a lot. You're very entitled. We made this version just for you. you it's like a cell phone pocket. You can tuss, tuck it in your
1: in your your foam. Wouldn't wouldn't the wouldn't catch? I feel like the the wear and tear on your knees is the blocking that happens on your knees. Like just that's rough. Yeah, smashing your knees into the ground. Like because when you see kids practice catching, it's always like they don't gingerly go down on their knees. They're basically just smoking their knees indoors on concrete and those like the i mean i guess you got you have shin guards on but come
2: on. blocking in the game feels a lot better than blocking in practice and that's why Mm. why do you block in practice
1: Mm.
0: so let's talk about something that i find fascinating so i'll share a quick story i watched a guy get hit in the nuts and (laughs) he was in such pain he crawled For no good reason, right? He's like a grown man just crawling away from everything and nothing at the same time. He crawls all the way almost to the third base box, coach's box. And then somehow he's back in the game four minutes later. (laughs) This was was a long delay. He got – I mean, he was hurting. How rough is it? How often do you get hit? And how do you mentally get yourself back in there that fast? It seems – it seems – insane sometimes that you guys are just like a couple deep breaths and you're back in there
2: well i mean yeah because you're a pitcher of course Mm -hmm. but one you can't do anything to avoid it put it that way because it nearly always happens on a foul tip which is something you can't control the only thing you can do to avoid it is please anybody who's listening to the show wear a cup uh, funny story, when I was on the, the Chicago Dogs, a rookie catcher, I won't name his name, but he never wore a cup. Oh, my One God. Year, whole year, I told him every game, I'm like, dude, you should probably wear a cup today. <laughs> never, never did it. said, hey, I never got hit. I never got hit. I'm like, oh, man, all right. You're going to learn, Rook. Last game of the year, second pitch of the game. Wham! Got him. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing the whole game when I said, I told you so. He was okay, thank God. But um,
0: Yeah, because he could very easily not be okay. That's a very oh, yeah. hard,
2: fast-moving ball against some... <laughs> That's no yeah. good. Um, yeah, he's- yeah, he's- but yeah, it's not fun. It, it's almost kind of that onset puke effect where you don't know what's about to happen. <laughs> and then you just go... That's why, see, that's why mound visits need to stay in the game too, because I use mound visits in that situation as a catcher. I'll go out there and say, "Hey, man, I need a second. I just got hit in the nuts <laughs> <laughs> So I played with a catcher
1: who also went to University of South Carolina uh, with the Orioles. I played with him Justin Dallas, I'll give him a shout out. Um, he's not yeah, listening, but he's fine I'll, I'll I'll send him the clip. But not only did he not wear a cup – sorry, sorry, Dallas. He also wouldn't wear sliding shorts. He would just wear the baseball pants. So, I mean, to get – he might, it was basically catching with, like, a millimeters of fabric protecting himself. And I'd give it to him. I mean, he blocked everything, and I, I don't think I ever saw him get hit during a game, you which I dirty? guess – I guess is a what, – what's that?
2: You get dirty back there,
1: too. Like you earlier. get dirty? Yeah, you get dirty. Like, it's a filthy position <laughs> that you play it to begin with. But like you said, it's not that you like, you're like, okay, you're good at blocking the ball. Like, you trust yourself to get the glove there. It's when the kid foul tips one and exactly. you can't react fast enough because it's impossible or it, and it hits the ground and it comes up underneath you. Exactly. Oh, I saw. I never wore one as an infielder. Like after my sophomore year of high school, I stopped wearing one. And I my my first year at pro ball and rookie ball, I saw a kid take an absolute laser one hop, and he was they take him to the hospital, and he got hit, and he didn't wear a cup either. So I put a cup on for like the next two weeks. I'm like, I'm gonna wear this cup just in case. Wanted to wear two of them. Well, it's, it's funny. funny. I, I just uh...
2: mentally though. Like, I can't I can't even catch a bullpen without a cup.
0: Why would you want to? I mean it doesn't matter. I there's
2: mean no reason to, it, to do anything catching without a cup <laughs> you're no. just you're just you're putting a bet down that you'll never win.
0: Well I mean I think most people even then are like just get it oh, I'll just get hit and it'll hurt but it's like no, you could be <laughs> no. seriously, permanently. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's funny that so I just been listening to this book and the guys talking about predicting future events and how terrible we are at it. And uh, these like black swan events. So like example, of like a black swan event, COVID-19 pandemic, massive disruption to the world that, you know, you really couldn't see this coming. 9-11, like there weren't really signs that that was going to happen. And people try to predict these things. And then after that, they make adjustments to their daily life and all that stuff. But you know so you're so your buddy your rookie catcher's logic his logic saying well I've never been hit there before therefore I won't get why would I get hit in the future is like literally it's the idiots he's it's talking terrible. about in this book literally the stupidest <laughs> logic like there's like how do you even respond to that
2: You you don't you just let it you just what let, it you well, you let What are
0: you doing? You let it
2: listen. That's, That's it. your
0: logic that <laughs> It hasn't happened yet, so it won't happen. Good grief! That's like why. That's like natural selection. I mean,
2: no, that's select- not want to learn the hard way.
0: Yikes! Um, I'm cringing a little bit just listening to you guys
1: talk about it. <laughs> so let's let's
0: jump to mound visits. <laughs> so, how much do you read body language and? what are you looking for to try to like control a game and what should catchers know as far as body language and the rising waves and falling waves of uh, of pitcher confidence?
2: Uh, I think it's happening every single second of every game. Um, If it's not, then you're not doing your job as a catcher or as a baseball player. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. if you're not reading body language in this game particular, you're, you're missing out on opportunities in my opinion. Um, but that's when when it comes to managing pitching staffs. You you brought it up. Uh, uh, you couldn't have said it any better. Like I always tried my hardest from day one, the second I met my entire pitching staff to start understanding them. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, I had my identity. I had I was the 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 guy who loved being there. Whatever I'm goofing off, I'm still taking it seriously, but i'm it's it's all about the game for me. Um, everybody has their own identity that's that's true, but you do need as a catcher to be able to understand every single one of your pitchers on that staff. It doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter if they're a friend, an enemy. you got to be able to figure it out and that's that's when the game hasn't even started yet once the game starts and you start reading the body language of your pitcher uh in the pen warming up you see how he's feeling you talk to him um and you get on the same page but not only are you reading the body language of the pitcher um you're reading the body language of the hitter too every single opportunity you get because both of those have to be kind of computed at the same time um but the, who do you think – who's a tougher guy to, to manage? The guy that's
1: uber confident, like, over the top or the guy who's got a little bit of reserve to him, like, second guesses? Maybe, maybe like, after he throws a bad pitch, he second guesses, you know, not shaking that pitch off. Uh, or the robot guy like
0: me. I was, like, the robot. Just, like – Just auto auto throw, whatever, whatever he calls you throw? Well, I was not going to try to be – you, I was gonna try not to show any real emotion about it. Even keel guys, I would think, are always the best.
2: I actually think it's the opposite way because it's tougher to peer into them because they're trying to hide it so much. The guys who wear the hearts on their sleeve, it's you know exactly mm-hmm. what they're feeling every single second, and if if you know how to fix it, you can. Obviously, they have to listen. Um, I don't, I don't really think one's harder than the other. I think everybody's different and that's a job of the catchers to be able to understand a lot of different kinds of people too, and be able to kind of associate with them on a moment's notice for three hours straight. Uh, And you got to kind of figure out, you got to understand that person to be, to understand what kind of person you need to be. Do you need to be that motivator? Do you need to be that best friend? Do you need to be that professional business straight business guy whatever you got to find what really really pulls at the brain and what what has an effect on them
1: i feel like the way you're describing it is the reason that a lot of catchers end up becoming professional managers is because you have to read the room like david ross just got the job with the cubs without ever coaching a game in professional baseball like i think if i I think what is a one-third of all big league uh it might be more, actually. One-third think- of all big league managers are former catchers. Yep. Well, especially at that level, What are, I mean,
0: a large part of your job is just literally writing the lineup that you know you're already going to write. Yep. I mean, if the manager doesn't show up one day, I mean, the players <laughs> could just sit together and be like, hey, <laughs> who's playing today?
2: The biggest thing to- is, that, is Tony
0: playing center field today? I'm like, no, you idiot. You never play. It, obviously, it's this guy. Like, like <laughs> we mean- know who's playing. You know what I mean?
2: Both of you guys experienced a professional clubhouse before. Bobby, how how often do you hang out with the pitchers and Dan, how often do you hang out with the position players? Not often. They're,
0: they're human garbage. That's the problem. No, dude,
2: that's that's weird. I always hung out with pitchers, I feel yeah. like. The catchers have to know everybody at all times. They're the only ones forced into that situation, actually. They're see but see but from our aspect that's a good as point. As a
1: position guy though, from our aspect, nobody wanted to hang out with the catchers. Cause you guys sucked. You're just, you're goons. You're just dirty. Like you're not, you're, you're always sturdy for some reason. Like you've always got dirt on you.
2: As we're always clean for some reason, we couldn't understand it either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So I want to, I want to, Dan, do you have something I want to jump into Dan's pet peeve? Uh, my I have a pet peeve. I just yes, want to share do. a
0: story. One, one, <laughs> one day, my uh, what made my rookie year. My catcher did this. He went like, it was like an ambiguous, like I wasn't sure if it was a one or two. I threw him a four seam fastball. I hit him right in the teardrop of his quad, clean. He thought it was gonna be a curveball, And his leg became so black and blue. It was like unbelievable. It was kind of like on the early days of smartphones where not, I guess not that early, but like I didn't think to take a photo of, of his leg, but I was like, holy God, dude, you look like you need to go to the hospital. I felt, at the same time, mortified and proud. And it was like, I don't know, it was kind of both of our fault. But anyway, that's well, the you part, see, the, guys. part of the tough life. Like, no glove, just straight 93 to the teardrop of your leg. Oh,
2: mm. Bro, getting so, across the – especially when the, when the pitcher throws a fastball and you call, call an off-speed pitch. That's no, that's no fun. I'm coming out there and talking to you after that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think he, I the, foot. he didn't want to make that 60-foot hobble. It lot.
1: was a one, not a two, Dan, or it was a two, not a one. It was supposed to be a two, it came in as a one. All right.
2: <laughs> what, what? No, I put down a two. <laughs> All
1: right. So so Dan's Dan's got uh, Dan's got an issue with coaches calling pitches. Oh yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. This is like a big. This is a hot topic for Dan. This is okay. Dan's. This is Dan's white whale on on Twitter. So I. Mike, I have, like, a two-part question, but I guess the first part of it is when did you stop – or when did the – did you ever not call your own game? I mean, or when did you start calling your own game? And then do you see the benefit of coaches calling the game for the catcher or do you see no benefit in that at all?
2: Uh, Me personally, growing up, I always called my own game. The only year – I did not call my own game it was one actually a couple games, like two games when I was on Gary, just because there was a certain pitcher that needed that there was a scout there and they wanted to see a certain amount of pitches and stuff. In um, one year in college where it was a first year coach and he just kind of wanted to control things. Um, <clears throat> but to Dan's argument, I'm 100% on his side. In order for uh, a kid to really, really learn the game like at a higher level, you have, to, you have to take control of the game by yourself. You have to call your own pitches. You have to start training your brain to read that body language at a, at a drop of a dime. And if you have someone else doing that for you your whole life,
0: you're never going to learn. Well, I agree. I I mean, I I think Dan agrees, yeah. it's I mean, the whole thing is, I'm tending to uh, to YouTube here as well. Um, Part of it is that, like you said, like how many times do we want kids to learn by failure, right? We want them to learn from failure. But yet, when it comes to pitch calling, we want to take the choice away from them. I mean, Mike, when did you start learning what to look for in hitters? Because that's a key part of calling, you know, your game. Like, when did you start to look at Oh, this dude's doing this, or this stance means that, or his hands mean he probably can't get to this pitch or that pitch. When did you When did those things start getting put together for you?
2: I guess I started I started really thinking about it when my pitchers got better. Um, when I wasn't just putting a sign down, it was more I was creating it was when I was creating my own pitch in order to have the guy miss the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to create some visually in your mind that'll work. The guy has to be able to execute it somewhat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, was probably 10 to 12 years old when I started playing travel ball with the Berlin bulldogs. Um, shout, that, out. They, shout out. Shout out. Yup. Uh, Bulldogs for life. Um, but, yeah, that's, it's, I started – it kind of fed into the competitive aspect of the game almost where your athletic ability or your mental ability and your partner's athletic ability kind of increases your inherent thought of the game and try, trying to beat the other guy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my thing is I don't think anyone's really thought about it from, like, a deeply logical standpoint. Like, you start to think, like, okay – how important is it is it that we call the right pitch right it's like important but not that important right if we call the wrong pitch and you still throw in a good location probably doesn't matter that much right like you know that yeah. mm-hmm. um also we don't know what the pitcher is thinking we don't know how confident he is in a certain pitch we don't know if he's thrown three crappy sliders in a row now and he doesn't want to throw it again we don't know if his arm's starting to get tired we don't know if he doesn't believe in his fastball um we can't see the pitchers. The pitcher has a much better point of view and the catcher has a much better point of view than the coach does from the dugout. Yep. Yep. The coach, their experience is often doesn't even equal the pitcher. I mean, how many youth coaches have less experience in baseball than their kids do at age 16 or on, in college? How many? I mean, how many pitchers at Vanderbilt or any other big school were often better than their pitching coaches were? Um, and Most, just out there, a, a lot of them. Now, of course, we know like being better at a young age doesn't always mean you have, you know, yeah, yeah, wisdom. I'm not saying that, but, you know, you get my point. But then, so then we're saying, okay, it probably doesn't matter 100% of the time. It clearly doesn't that you call the exact right pitch. Execution matters. There's all these things that the coach can't possibly know how the coach, you know, what the catcher sees, what the pitcher sees, what the pitcher feels. Um, and so then the coach is calling the game based on his own experiences he doesn't know the pitchers like ins and outs very well like if i'm calling a game i'm always going to be somewhat biased to to the way i used to pitch or you know i have to call the game for nine different pitchers how am i going to get it right like how do i know there's just like when you start to break down percentages of the the odds of you getting the pitch call right compared to the guy who's out there it just seems ridiculous that you're going to make you know make that call right and now at the same time with really young experience level i could probably certainly call a better game than a 14-year-old kid. But even then, when you start to think, okay, what's better for him long-term, is it, is it me or is it just letting him do it? And, and if it's the gap between me calling a great game and him calling a not-as-great game, is the gap even that big? Like if he calls some dumb pitches but like still executes, does it even matter?
2: I think it, you know? it goes back to your, your example you gave with who you wanted to catch you. Uh, and and you could put yourself in the manager's shoes at that point. Who's the guy that you trust to call the game? Does the guy have a brain on his shoulders? Can like When you talk to him, does he sound like he knows the game? Um, there has to be that trust with the coach or the manager. I guess it depends on what level we're talking about, but um, if we're talking about the higher levels, yeah, that trust needs to be there. And if that trust is there, it's just – you're gone. Call your own game. Go. Um, but then another thing, like, another thing that's kind of hidden with pitch calling that's not really out there is too much is, is pitching with a purpose and pitching to adjustment for the pitcher. Um, say, like, the first two pitches of the game, guy throws two fastballs, misses high and arm side, He's not getting extended enough. I'm going to call a curveball just to call a curveball to get him extended. I don't care if it's a fastball, or I don't care if it's a strike, a ball. Guy swings at it, I don't care. I just want to do it in order to him mm-hmm. to get his uh, delivery back. A coach can't really see that. A yeah, coach not care too much about that third pitch of the game being a fastball when, in reality, that third pitch of the game could help him for the rest of the game. Um. And that's it's just exactly what you said. Like it's it's impossible for the coach. I I even called pitches when I coached for uh, at the junior college level. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like to do it. I told my guys, I said, I don't want to do this. You have to you have to show me like, you know, a little bit. Um, but even when I did, the the catchers that weren't playing would be sitting right next to me, and I would be explaining why I'm calling this. Or what I'm seeing, and I'm trying to relay that so they could kind of go do it on their own. Um, so if if there is a right way for the coach to call pitches, it's to explain in depth, in detail, as much as you can why he's doing everything. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, the the problem though is you get you don't get to do it in that moment. So example- when you're when you're out on the mound as a pitcher you don't have to like, you know, you see the slider get signed, get put down. You just like, all right. And you go, you don't have to have that little moment where you're like really thinking about the way the hitter took the previous pitch, what the situation is like, you don't, you don't have that moment where you're pulling all the data in like a vacuum. And then, and so that's where I think you really miss. And the other thing is like, like you said, you're sitting there with your catchers and watching it, but it's, it's always funny when, when people are complaining from the dugout about, strike calls like (laughs) I can't I can't see if that pitch is on the corner or not no one can we complain about it because we (laughs) want to help our buddies but you can't tell you just tell glove movement at best so it's really hard to know like oh should we go back in there it's like well was that last fastball even inside like go in there again was the last one even inside we don't know how far was it It is you know it looks inner half looks the same as inner corner from the dugout it's really really tough to know um and you're right when you explain it that's definitely the best way to do it but it's it's also really hard to do that as unless you're a you know you're like a second or third assistant right like you're you're not the head coach for trying to run around and do
1: everything exactly that's
0: really challenging
1: so well i think the big point you too is like the level you're at the guys get paid to win so if he feels like the catcher's not ready to call his own game he can't trust them and we've talked about this in the past uh on the podcast too if you're getting paid to win then Okay, like you do whatever you feel like you need to do to win the game. If that means you you have to call the game from the from the dugout, great. If you're at the youth level and you're trying to develop a kid and make him better, you know, him calling his own game is clearly the way. Like I don't buy into the, well, he's going to learn because uh, I'm, you know, I'm calling the game so he's going to learn because I, you know, I'm calling the right game and and he's he's putting the signs down, so it'll instinctively like no. The kid's back there looking at you, touch your face, and he's just putting down whatever the hell number he sees. Like, he doesn't, he's not registering why that's good or bad. Like, he's, he barely knows what, what day it is. Like, he's just down there doing whatever he's told to do, which isn't the probably the best for learning.
2: And can we breaks, establish that? That's, like, that's the worst part of it is is it screws with the game flow. That's, that's what I hated the most as a catcher. <laughs> being told pitches is waiting i don't like waiting i like like going like especially on the end of this game Mm -hmm. if you're not controlling the pace of the game you lose in my opinion um and if if you're if you're establishing a higher tempo than the offense you're you're at an advantage all the time and that can never happen with someone else calling with a third person in the pitch calling conversation
1: dan do you would you say the pitcher or the catcher controls the tempo between pitches more more so
0: uh pitcher because as much as the catcher wants to pull them along the pitcher can just like get the ball back and just stop i mean you feel the catcher impatiently waiting so i think that you know helps you keep going but Pitchers that are slow are pitchers that are slow, and like they're just like a force of nature that no one really fixes. Unfortunately, would you would you agree with that, Mike?
2: Yeah, it just goes with understanding each and every pitcher. Mm-hmm. You want you want to find their ideal tempo. You want to find you want to see their ideal release on every single pitch, and then compare it to every single other pitch. Um, but yeah, if you could if you could really feel that pitcher's ideal cadence just of everyday life and you can lock into that. You want to try to get them as quick as you can, but you don't want to you don't want to rush them. If you rush, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a fine line. You got to kind of find it and keep it there. And it's hard to too like when you're calling pitches. I mean, it's
1: it's not that you can't it's not like that the kid calling his own game won't call the wrong pitch. It's like there's really only especially at youth level like there's only one pitch that a guy can control normally, and it's a fastball. Even yeah. even when you get to pro ball, like, yeah, like, I've played with catchers. I thought – I'm like, this guy calls a bad game. Like, why we shouldn't be calling that pitch here. But at the same time, it's like you're looking at the pitcher and like, well, the guy's only got one pitch that he can control anyways. Like, are we just going to get to 3-2 every time because we want to fool around with the rest of these pitches? Or, yeah. like – and and by control I mean like at least make look like a strike because like there's certain guys you know like that throw their off speed pitch that it doesn't even start close to the zone where it's like okay this is just a wasted pitch at that point exactly and then there's and and a lot of guys are honestly like guys of the bullpen Dan you can probably talk more about this in can, but most guys are two pitch guys out of the bullpen. So, I mean, you really got a 50-50 shot of calling the right or wrong pitch. And just because a guy hits, like, let's say he hits a bomb or he hits a double off the wall, like, that's not necessarily the wrong pitch. It just means he had a good, like, he saw it well and he hit it. It's not necessarily that the guy called the bad a bad game or a bad sequence.
0: Well, there really is just so much randomness in pitch calling because <laughs> you is. don't know what's right and what's wrong. The end location is also random. So even if you choose, oh, this is the pitch I'm going with, that's like my thing is in youth baseball, you're like, you're going to call – Oh, it's got to be a fastball away. They miss their spot like 70% of the time. It's like it doesn't even matter that you call the location. It like, matters almost none.
2: <laughs> the, call, the call is. think,
0: though,
2: the call isn't as random as you think. The execution. Mm-hmm.
0: Might- yeah, um, that's true. But there's still, I mean, even if the call is lo- less random from your standpoint, I, I think, I guess my point in that was say you took. 10 computer generated sequences of a hundred pitches and you could just send them all out and you had 10 alternate universes and in 10 alternate universes, that pitcher, like it was all Max Scherzer in universe. A he throws random pitch sequence a, and then in the 10 alternate universes, you wonder if there's really a significant difference. Um, and let's say all those pitches were the same so all 100 pitches were like there's a fastball in the corner there's a curveball down the middle whatever so that's like all 100 pitches are exactly the same they're just randomized in that game you wonder how different the outcome actually is in that game it's probably uh, pretty different but maybe not as different as we think we don't i don't know it's an interesting thing to think about
2: less randomness more variables in my opinion if, if the, your ability to harness all those variables and come up with your best chance is a good pitch-calling catcher or good pitcher that actually mm-hmm. thinks the game. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there is – random. I mean, even, like, the one thing that's never talked about in pitch-calling is, with, with, is what I looked at every game, and I almost put importance over the pitcher's strengths at times – is the weather. the wind's blowing in at 40 miles an hour, nobody's hitting the home run. I want the guys to hit the ball in the air. I want to hit it. I want them to hit it as hard as they possibly can in the air because it's Mm -hmm. an out every single time. Yeah, for sure. On a day like that, generic pitch calling, pitcher's strengths, hitter's weaknesses go completely out the window because mother nature's dictating outs in everything.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, but like there's there's just variables like that,
0: and yeah. For sure, that's that's a good way of putting it.
2: The variables change every pitch, every day. It it's constant, but there are certain rights and wrongs following up certain things that happened, in my opinion. But yeah, so it, let's too, let's yeah.
0: go into that. Let's talk about what do you what if if there are rules? Obviously, nothing's ever set in stone, so we know that if there were like rules you're going to lay out that in general, these are things you should follow as a pitcher slash catcher. What would some of yours be? Cause I have some of mine in his own. We can compare, but.
2: Well, if I were to nutshell it as a catcher, I want to take in, this is obviously excluding the first pitch of the game. Um, I want to take in the pitch, how it moved, where crossed i want to take in the hitter's timing of his load and his stride when he's getting it into the hitting position first is he is he late getting into the hitting position aka is front foot getting down or whatever you want to say i know you want to swing your foot down bob but <laughs> uh <laughs> um but yeah and it's uh so you take into that say say the guy fouled it straight back so you want to put that image in your head, and you want to adjust it to have the guy swing and miss or hit the ball where you want him to hit, it, hit the ball. So say the guy fouled a fastball right down the middle straight back. He's on time with the fastball. Say it's a regular day, no wind, no nothing. What do you want him to do? Do you want him to ground into a double play? Do you want him to fly out? Do you want him to strike out? You need to make that decision first. So do you want it to jam him? Do you want it to swing and miss? Or do you want it to hit the end of his bat? And uh, you want him to be out in front? Um, obviously, slower pitches work better when the guy's timed up for the fastball. So um, you want it's a constant push and pull for me for slowing them up and speeding them down. That's pretty generic pitch call tactic. Um, But yeah, if I, if I were to generalize it, it's just, it's taking that one pitch and adjusting it and trying to manipulate the next one to get the result that you want. And that result isn't a swing and a miss every time. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you can adjust, like if it's a four-seam fastball and you just fouled it back, you throw a two-seam. It's probably going to run in on him a little bit, jam him, ground ball, double play, or up out. out of the inning. Um, so it's just it's it's that it's kind of um, yeah, it's just adjusting what you just saw. Put it that way.
1: Okay. Obviously, okay. what are your staples, Dan? As far as like...
2: that's an idea too, and the pitcher has to execute.
0: Um, I mean, I have some general things. So, like for me, trying to help our catchers call games back when I had my academy teams, uh, helping pitchers to understand, like in general, what the framework is for calling their own games. You know, for me, I you know everyone chops at the plate, right? So there's the middle of the plate, inner half, outer half, inner third, outer third, corner, corner. You know, spot where you'd bounce a breaking ball, where you'd elevate, you know, above the letters and above. So for us, it was always even, even counts or half half of the plate counts in general. So catchers pretty much know that that's where you're going to start and then you'll adjust for the situation. So um, one one 2 2 3 2 0 oh, oh, inner half or outer half, pick one of those. And that's what, you know, you see most guys in pro ball do. Um, you know, don't jump to the thirds until you're one oh, one or 1-2. One, you know, if you're 0-2, oh, we're not really going to go to the corners that often. We're really going to more like elevate or bounce something, looking for a strikeout because you're o oh, 2 Let's try there. Um, and then, you know, when you're behind the count, halves or middle and then obviously if like we have a base open key runner all right we're not going to use halves anymore we're just going to jump to thirds so that's in, in a sense i think what catchers and pitchers do they just never really like frame it that way like you don't you don't want to think that you're like a robot but in a sense you pretty much are i mean would you tend to agree with that in general that with those counts you're typically setting up in those those positions
2: typically i mean yes i wouldn't i wouldn't maybe not as often as you think, uh, generic, generic. Yes. That's like your, your game plan going into the game, I guess Mm -hmm. you want to say. Yeah. Uh, But like nine hole guy, Oh two. And you don't want to, you don't want to play around with them. You're not probably not going to throw a ball in the dirt. You know what I mean? You're going to go right after him. Um, it just like I said, it just changes. There's so many variables, and it changes every single pitch, and it depends on who's pitching, who's hitting, what's happening. Um, but yeah, the generic thing, obviously, you're ahead in the count. You have you, your your zone expands, or your your success zone expands. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Dan, doesn't that go against like? I am gonna push back them like I am gonna I am gonna
1: mess around. Well, I was gonna I was I'm gonna, gonna, gonna punch, push gonna back more as like yeah. as that's that's more of a philosophy for the pitcher. Like it always, the halves, thirds. Well, i mean saying that from the catcher's aspect, like with the way they're with the way catching is being taught now. Like you're not giving a target to that zone. Like a lot of the guys are resting the glove down and then you know coming up to the baseball. So you're not giving the pitcher like, okay, it's 0-0 count. I call a fastball in like you're not giving him a visual. That's more for like okay, the pitcher's got to understand like okay, it's 0-0. I'm working on the half. It's 0-1. Yeah. I'm working on the I'm working on the thirds. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's two strikes. I'm working on the on the corners. So isn't that that's kind of more of a like a pitcher's philosophy? I yeah, really, really love that. What the well,
2: hell?
0: Is and Mike, so the 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 problem for me that that solves, and you've I don't know if you've have you spent much time in youth baseball probably not because yeah. you've been playing recently but
2: I, I i have i've been around the training of it not necessarily coaching as much yeah
0: the big problem in youth baseball is they don't understand margin for error like they understand that you you go down the middle two zero, 0 but they don't really know why and when you sort of break it down you're like okay well two and you know catcher you'd probably put your mitt down the middle right and they go i go why well Cause we need a strike. I'm like, but why, why does middle? Cause you don't want it to end up in your mitt. Do you, you don't want to, when our goal is not to pipe it too well, is it? And they're like, oh no, I guess not. It's like, it's because it gives you more margin for error. Like you yeah. can miss and catch up. And they don't really understand how manipulating margin for error is really like a huge part of location. And so what most young pitchers seem to do, I mean, if you ask around, they like all oh, do this. They have two zones of the plate, which is middle and the corner, and it hurts them so much because all right, they they get ahead, great, then they bop right to the black, and then guess what happens? At least half of their misses are off the plate, and so now they're back to one and one, and they're back over the middle of the plate, right? Instead of all right, middle, now we're going to go maybe outer half, maybe outer third. So you still have a much you know now we have like a two thirds chance of getting to O two instead of a 40% chance or whatever. And that's like okay. the one of the big disconnects where we're trying to help, we, I was trying to help my catcher say, like, look, especially 0-1, pivotal count or 1-1, we need you to have more of the white, your body on more of the white because we'd rather you then put the ball in play and they vappy over or we have a better chance of getting to 0-2-1-2 and then we can do all that other stuff. Does that kind of make sense?
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, the, the more ahead of the count in general, the more off the plate I'm going to be setting up. Mm-hmm. So whatever the pitch call is, the more up I'm going to give the target. Um, <clears throat> I guess, yeah, I, I guess it's correct. I guess it doesn't happen 100% of the time. I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but to Bobby's point, all catchers still do give targets. You just don't yeah. see it they give it early they they give their sign they get in their stance they show it and then they rest mhm
1: so it's a it's a it's an invisible target is what you're saying
2: no the targets there you just got to remember it
1: <laughs> yeah, I, would prefer, I it. would prefer catchers use the old catchers gloves with the orange outline on the glove So I know where the hell I'm supposed to throw the. Those
0: are amazing. Can we get a big league catcher to get one of those custom made, like obviously with pro preferred leather, but just like, just to throw it back for us? Why did
1: they go out of style? Though that is that's a great invention. Whoever did that, whoever made uh, the fact the factory that made that orange patent leather probably caught fire and burned down or something. The same the same factory that was making the old catching gloves that said Lance Parrish on them all the time. Lance Parrish was the most famous catcher I had ever heard of because his name was on every glove. I don't even know. I honestly don't even know if he played in the, in the big leagues that, if, if at all. I don't know. No one knows that. Um, l- let's talk about this setup. So
0: you're right, uh, Mike. That pitchers essentially we like see when we see you set up there for that brief second. It's like we take a snapshot, and then it's like in the bank. That's exactly. what's going mentally. We've, we're already visually like we know what's happening. And then it doesn't matter after that. Like we started delivery yep. and, and we're good. So what would you advise young people to do? Like what do they need to know about pre-pitch setup, where their hands go, all that stuff?
2: Essentially, you're giving your target until the pitcher starts the delivery. That's exactly what you just described. Like once you start your delivery, you're gone. Um, <clears throat> so what I teach my catchers is to keep the target, target up or flash it even if you want to stay relaxed until – that front foot gets picked up by the pitcher. And then what essentially happens is you load your glove just like you would load to hit, getting yourself in <clears throat> the best position possible in order to control the ball as it's coming to you. And one relaxed position is by far the most important thing. And two is to be low working underneath the ball. So, that's that's what's happening when you see those gloves drop to the ground, Bob. Yeah, I, I still look, I don't give any credit
1: to catchers who don't have the orange outlined glove. But... Orange,
2: orange glove and knee savers. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> <laughs> and then and uh, can we talk about catchers always have like the catchers that have the shoulder pad or the neck thing dangling down from their mask? Like catchers We're... are just weird. You guys <laughs> have so many gadgets. Well, getting hit in the throat is not not that's a pleasant experience. I need a big league catcher to come out and wear like the two shoulder guards. I see some guys. Some guys wear the shoulder guards, don't they? Like the one one side or the yeah, other.
2: You usually, you usually wear it on your your right. And that's it. The left, nobody cares about. But if you get hit right here in your right, you don't want to throw the ball for no. Why time. did Why did the neck flap gullet thing that, get? Well, that should never have existed because it teaches catchers to block the wrong way. Um, Why? It teaches you – it teaches that your neck that is protected. You, that you can do this.
1: But it mm-hmm. looks like – and then you could put a logo on there. You could put, like, your catcher's capital logo on the <laughs>
2: neck, thing. The, that Whoever that big leaguer is needs to have no cup and knee savers, though, too. So I am how,
1: very anti – I'm sorry, Dan, I was – just Thanks for being sorry. I appreciate one it. One more opinion that I hate about catchers: I hate the hockey mask. Catcher. Same. I prefer the two piece just because it makes you look more badass. Which was why, probably why Mike wore the hockey mask his whole
2: life. I didn't. The only thing I was excited going to college for is wearing the two piece. Yeah, the
1: two piece definitely looks
2: badass. <coughs> I I firmly believe that it helps you on foul tips that hit you in the mask too, because it just explodes instead of rattling around.
0: Hmm, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if, I wonder if there's any, uh, I'm sure there's a I lot like, of re- research behind those cocky masks, but I wonder if any of it's like out there where, or just internal like engineering kind of stuff, you know? Like, I don't know. That, has, that actually is a really interesting point because when stuff breaks, so it's like if I was to hit Bobby with a chair, it Just all disperses, and the chair breaks. He's yeah. probably gonna be less injured than if I hit him with a chair that doesn't break. Exactly, exactly. So like a like
2: WWE chair
0: versus blow up. That makes that's interesting. That's an interesting
1: idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, just put it on, take a foul tip, and you'll feel it. Let's
1: try it later, Mike. I'll throw <laughs> it <all> straight at <laughs> your face.
2: We'll get the stream going right before my softball game tonight. <laughs> 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 Three hundred sixty-four more days till next year's so hockey tryout. Oh
0: so okay so throat guards never should have been a thing um cups should always be should always be a thing (laughs) shoulder shoulder guards probably need to be a thing um are there any spots so let's talk about thumb guards because that's one that's not typically known and by a lot of players like they don't really know it exists until they either break their thumb or sprain their thumb or like i broke this poor bullpen catcher uh, he went to the hospital because i threw him a a curveball or a cutter or something just like tell us about thumb guards
2: uh i never used them up until college and then exactly what happened i there was one of my guys was throwing like 94 95 everything running off of my left leg and just crushing my thumb uh by the end of the day i couldn't even feel it my backup catcher had a thumb guard and he's like dude try this so I put it on. First ball I caught, I didn't even f- feel it on my thumb. And at the point, my thumb was the size of my, my calf. Um, and then I started, like, really buying into it. And not only did it, like, form that sort of exoskeleton protector on my, my thumb, but it helped me control the ball. Uh, it helped me get under it. It almost provided a foundation underneath the ball to kind of help it be moved back towards the zone. Um, gotcha. I never went back after that. One day, I I always <laughs> needed my my thumb guard because it it not only protects you but it makes you a better receiver, just physically.
0: Does anyone not use those in pro ball?
2: Oh yeah, there's a, there's it's it's a big personal preference, but um, I would say the vast majority uses them now. I mean, they're even starting to put them in the gloves, like they're making them inside the glove. I know Wilson does it. Um not sure if anybody else does but I've seen those yeah they have the the thumb guard installed inside the glove. No opening Evo, the thumb the Evo opening
0: is, still a company? Does Evo does Shield buy, still exist?
2: Evo Shield yeah. Yeah, that, they still that, made them. That, that's like the the most popular one that's the one you buy separate.
0: I felt like they were in financial trouble at some point that's why I asked in in that way if they were still a company but They're a Wilson.
1: They're a Wilson. They got ball now. I think. Yeah. Interesting. Makes I like, I like being in pro ball where you take the hot, the, the plastic and put it in the, uh, Oh yeah. The hot, the hot water and you make your own oh, thumb guard. I, I just, probably made like three thumb guards in my career just cause just out of pure boredom. <laughs> That's just to make them. Those are good. Yeah. I need some Evo shields for
0: my scootering around, around the city. A couple of <laughs> elbow guards. I just wait and just waiting to crash. I need, <laughs> I, need, I need. to be ready for it. So Can we talk
1: about how how uh, badass old school catchers were. Where they, where they were like basically just standing with a with All a sack mitten, of potatoes a <laughs> <protector>? <laughs> with a mitten with just a little ball insert and they had to catch it with two hands.
2: Unbelievable.
1: Like, which Look. either means which either means the pitchers were throwing fifty or these guys were just they were just catching cannonballs in the offseason with their bare hands. Did those guys wear cups? They made of never... wood.
0: I don't know yeah. a good like when dense wood like walnut. I mean, in...
2: when did the cup get invented? That's a good question.
0: Pre- How... It's pretty. It's pretty old. I'm. I'm pretty sure. I'll. I'll be. Was. Uh, is, is it Jamie from the Joe Rogan podcast? Yeah. I'll, I'll be Jamie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I will.
0: Well, I will well, say the cod, piece, the cod piece was a, around a long, long time from like fencing and stuff like that. That's in general. Um,
2: I guess, uh, yeah. Men
1: have, been, men have been protecting their private parts for generations. Uh, <laughs> that's Is not it? the kind of cup I wanted.
0: It? <laughs> Google pulled up menstrual cups. So, also, um, you know, okay. Uh, Dan, you've got your the, the best Jamie right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I
1: can't imagine the Google images
0: you're pulling up. There's no images, and I mean, that's still, I mean, we're all humans. I mean, look, women, it's a part of their life, right? But that's not what I wanted, Google. I want male <laughs> protective cups. Google is struggling here. Okay, 1874. When baseball started. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, let's... Apparently, to provide comfort and support for bicyclists riding the cobblestone
1: streets of Boston... <laughs>
2: Hey. hey, have you uh, been? Man. Have you guys been
1: to Boston? Those streets are brutal.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. I wouldn't
1: ride my bike. The streets. No, damn. Not it rattle, it rattle your brain. Yeah, Philly's and apparently, same way. and apparently, uh, <laughs> other parts of your body.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So, Mike, have there been any? I know there's like the the Nut Buddy is one. Um, there's been some evolution of the cup. In the last like decade, right? I mean, are you still using like the old standard one, or is there something like new and unique no, sure
2: it's I went, stuff, um, right? So as high, school. I I always used use the I think there were the Riddell plastic white ones growing uh-huh. up. Um, but my buddy played, grew up playing hockey. He was pretty good. Um, and he, the hockey cups were made of like, like the old. Hybrid glass and steel, and I—I, I, it was laying in his bag. But I'm like, "What the hell is that thing?" And uh, I bought one of those, and got the, I never went back from those. It was—it's kind of like a hybrid rubber plexiglass gorilla glass. I don't know what the hell it was, but it protected me. I think the only acceptable cup is the one from Little Giants, where he puts it over his face. That's—that's <laughs> that's the only acceptable cup i've never Nutty buddy though <laughs> nutty buddy looks fun the best that's
1: the best infomercial
2: oh. of, of <laughs> all time
1: like if there's ever been a better demonstration on an infomercial i haven't seen it
0: <laughs> well i mean that's what it takes i mean do you remember when the uh the uh the kevlar um bulletproof vest was invented do you know what it took to get cops to wear that so That's they get shot. shot it's a very remarkable video no a guy took a like 38 special and went boom to himself what so you can find wow. the video on the web i mean look i mean it was a it was a real thing and like look i believe in this product it it works he tested it and tested and tested but people didn't believe it could stop a bullet he goes boom and then he like gets his gun he like shoots three targets it's a remarkable you can find it it's a it's a remarkable video on youtube but a Jeez. lot of times stuff like that has to be like, Hey, if you believe in the product, like prove it. <laughs> and I know they, they did that with a nutty buddy, right? Like
1: I have
0: this article pulled up and it's actually filled with just gems. One of which is they're talking about Juan Uribe got hit by a 106 mile power ground ball. Oh, <laughs> and here's the, here's the quote at the end. Um, they're, Talking about your eBay, he says they didn't have my size. <laughs> that's why he wasn't. That's why he wasn't wearing a cup that day. But good grief! I mean, there there has been some evolution, and I don't know why we keep I keep bringing it back up to. It, but I think it's a. I mean, it's something that kids like. Too many kids who play infield don't wear them, and I used to talk to my team about this. I'm like, dude, stupid! Like that's very stupid what you're doing.
1: <laughs> very stupid. I can't make you do it, but you really, really should should have one. When I do when I do youth clinics, I always like do a, like make the kids line up. Like, all right, everyone, tuck their shirt in, put their hat on. Like, everyone in a cup, and then it's always like the funniest <laughs> part of practice because because there's all yeah. Well, there's no. It's always there's always like three or four kids that like
2: yeah, they're so happy.
1: They, yeah, they're they're ha- like they bang their cup to show you that it works, and like, like yeah, they just hit hit it as hard as <laughs> try and make the cup as loud as possible. I'm going to screen share here.
0: So here's this USA Today article showing, showing some of the high-tech ones. Where's um, the little Giants cup? This is the Nutty Buddy, the one that's one, uniquely shaped, one, I
2: guess. The one that I had.
0: The Shock yes. Doctor? Yep. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's an interesting evolution. I mean, when I went to Turkey and I was uh, doing that baseball clinic for almost a month last year – it didn't even occur to me to – like, I hadn't thought about it because in America, most kids, like, their parents know that's a thing. It's a part of sports. There, like, we're doing catching practice, and, like, after, like, the first day, I was like, wait, did any of you have a couple on are like, a what? <laughs> I'm like, oh, you've never heard of this. Perfect. I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know what to do now. So I was super nervous and kind of, like, blocking practice got a lot more simplistic, and we used tennis balls and stuff after that, but – it's just so. odd that no one that it wouldn't
1: occur to any of them to want to protect themselves.
2: I just don't even think they know.
1: That, well, in, that, yeah, well, in it's, Turkey, isn't it? No. Isn't that like lots of kids? I don't know. But isn't if you're an adult, like, isn't that always like in the back of your mind, like protect my vital parts? Actually, <laughs> <if you> never. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. <laughs> if something <laughs> could potentially hit me there, I'm, it's at least <laughs> crossed my mind.
2: Yeah. It should be
1: if you get into a, if you get into like a fight on the street, like it's always in the back of my mind. Like what if this guy just punches
0: me in the nuts? So let's shift to throwing. So as we kind of like get towards the, uh, we've had a good, good conversation today. We're at the 90 minute mark. Let's talk about throwing Mike. What do guys, what do people need to know about throwing? There's been a lot of debate on Twitter, people rolling their eyes about, you know, these crazy pop times at showcases, yada, yada, yada. We had, Dan Savit from PBR on the show about a month or two ago. And he was talking about like, look, we can't prevent everyone from cheating their face off in, in these showcases. Um, but like what do kids need to learn? What do they need to do to be better at throwing? And then do you roll your eyes at pop times?
2: Uh in regards to the showcase pop times, I don't roll my eyes at the numbers. I roll my eyes at the kids. Whenever I was in a showcase, I would never set up in a spot that wasn't game-like. Um, I've actually heard some showcase guys that run showcases purposefully putting them up 0.1 because they cheated. So it's not, it's not even a real time. Um, I don't know. That's just how it was That's shady. That's shady too. I mean, if you know don't it, add, right? It, like don't add.
1: Just but I think everybody understands. I don't mean to cut you up, I think everybody understands, like, okay, they're all cheating at the showcase, so it's at least a measure of who is faster at cheating. Like mm-hmm. like there's guys that there's there's pro days, uh scout days with colleges where they put the sixty yard dash at fifty nine yards to to boost a few guys like it's still all relative. Like if if it's if it's sixty yard dash is sixty five yards, the guy that ran the fastest is still the fastest guy. His time might not be correct, but continue. I'm sorry. Uh,
2: well, yeah. Put it this way. I think I think you could avoid both if the catchers just set up in the right spot. And to the PBR's point, that it's all it takes is a a piece of tape. Um, but in regards to achieving that better pop time, what kids really need to learn is a few like overall ideas. Um, One is to not gain ground with your first step. Okay. That's the biggest thing. Um, It's creating effective momentum off the push of your back foot and not a walk through with your back foot. Um, You could compare it. I compare a throw from the catcher to two things. One, it's a relay throw from a shortstop to home. And two, it's a double play uh, turn from the second baseman. You have to be able to adjust to wherever the ball is and be able to move around it as efficiently as you can. Um, And that goes into – working around your center of gravity and kind of attaching it to the ball in order for you not to gain ground with that first step. Um, And it it needs to feel connected. Um, The more you allow the the momentum of the baseball coming into you to help with your transfer, um, the more you bring your glove to your hand instead of your hand, to your glove, that's going to help. And if you feel connected, I basically put a throw into four parts, connected into two. Uh, the four parts is first step, second step, transfer, and throw. Your transfer, the ball getting into your hand and up into the short slot, kind of like you're throwing a football, should happen should finish at the same time your first steps hitting the ground. If those two happen, the backside's connected. Mm-hmm. Um, you as a pitcher, no, you have to wait until your front heel hits in order for your backside to go. Um, and as soon as that front heel hits or your front side starts going, you start throwing. Um, so then that ties into the other two parts, the second step and the throw. So those should feel connected too. But if you get the first two connected as in the transfer and <coughs> your first step, that is is in my opinion almost more important than connecting the next two, because um, if you have those two, you're in a pretty good position to start. So I think the
1: mo- I think the the big thing you said there is like don't try and gain ground yes. on your first step. I don't know if you guys have seen that video of that little kid who like runs out in front of the the hitter, catches it, and the guy swings and just smokes him in the back. Yep. <laughs> just like made it made its rounds recently. It's not funny that he got hit, but it's funny like. It's true. As long as he's not hurt. I mean, I I get, that's, isn't that, you know, the first, why you see a lot of kids, they catch the ball and their first instinct is like get a little bit closer to second base instead of get themselves in like a strong position to throw. Because what is that, what is that half step closer going to get you?
2: It literally nothing. You're putting, 18 inches. Putting yourself in the same exact throwing position. It's just taking you a lot longer to get there.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Uh,
2: Okay. But yeah, so that's kind of overall in a nutshell how, How I like how I try to train my catchers. Okay. Um,
0: Arm action, stuff like that. Is it something you really need to work on? Is it, I mean, I think one of the common things I think kids seem to do wrong is that they are sometimes taught to bring everything here. Where in reality, it seems like catchers, they're catching it through the middle and then the arm is leaving the glove, which is correct.
2: Kind of, it's misconstrued. So, I believe it's, it's a mix of both. You, like I said, every single good uh, catch and release guy, whether it be a middle infielder or a catcher or whatever, brings their glove to their hand. Go, their hand is, is almost moving independently up to the slot that they're throwing from, it, and their glove meets their hand at the spot. Um, at the same time, that does happen in front of your chest. It always Mm -hmm. happens in front of your chest. But while you're moving, setting up to your target, you're not facing your target. You're facing this way. Yeah. So inherently, as you're turning, this goes back. Your transfer goes back. uh, But it's still happening in front of your chest. So that's when you see, I see a lot of catching instructors teaching transfers out here, (laughs) which doesn't make much sense to me because you're going to have to bring your hand back anyway. Um, gotcha. so, so yes, I, I, your transfer does happen in front of your chest, but it's, it's happening on the side of your body per se, because you're turning.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense.
2: So it's, it's, it's kind of the happy medium between the two.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, when do you think kids need to start catching? Is there a time that like, is this something that they need to kind of get into early in their development to be, eventually be good? Can they play a lot of different positions? Can they pick this up later or do they need to be on like the catcher track from a young age? Uh,
2: I believe every, it doesn't matter what position you want to play. I believe the first few years of a kid playing baseball, they should at least catch a few games. Um, it is literally the only position that you're looking the opposite way. Um, you get that other that you see the game in a different perspective. Um, as for a kid that wants to be a catcher or see someone that sees a kid being a catcher, yes, I believe they should be catching as much as possible as early as possible. Um, Now that doesn't mean you run them into the ground before they get to high school, Mm -hmm. but uh, for them to start taking ownership of the position that can't be taught. And in order to make it, in such a demanding position, <clears throat> an important position, you you need you need to to want to be there and i think that can only de- be developed if you've done it for a long time because it's tough to just go in there and catch a game if you haven't done it. There's a lot of nuance to being a catcher. I would oh,
1: yeah. say uh, i mean other than pitching, other than being a pitcher because you just can't do that necessarily every day. I would say the earlier you can put them in a position that maybe they'll project at That's or good. long-term the better catching is catching is the one. And it's always been the one where it's like, obviously defense is so much more valued at that position uh, than other positions that and shortstop feels like defense is Those positions are light hitting positions in the past because they're demanding f- defensive positions, more demanding than most. Mm-hmm. But it still would be beneficial to all kids. Like if you know your son, like your son's a lefty, he's going to be, you know, the dad's six five, he's going to be a first baseman. He's not that fast. Like it would benefit him a ton to just play first base. Like actually learn the position, get, you know, get accustomed to the nuance of the position. And it's usually what you see at the youth level. The, the best players have been playing those positions all the time. Like they have an understanding. And it's hard to expect a young kid to be good at catching and then, okay, let's throw him in the outfield and let's let him make sure he's good at, like, reading a fly ball. And then if he misjudges a fly ball, you get mad at him. It's like the kid spends a third of his time out there as opposed to the kid, other kids who spend all their time out there. Yeah. And it's a, honestly, like, outfield is looked at as, as like, a you know, you put the worst kids in the outfield, That's, which is not necessarily true. Um, but catching specifically, I feel like it's a nuanced position – it's the equipment is different if, oh, yeah. for all other things. Like you got If you're going to be a catcher, you should have your own equipment. You need a special glove. That's the only position on the field where it's a little bit different. Even first base, you can use your regular glove.
2: And that goes into the point where kind of if, if you do know the kid's going to be a catcher or you that kid wants to be a catcher, I think it's extremely important for him to play every single other position too and understand how it's played especially pitching. I think growing up, a catcher needs to know how to pitch. He needs to understand pitching mechanics and how it feels to be on that bump in order to be able to manage a pitching staff to his full potential when he gets older.
1: Which is I mean, why I don't understand why all these professional catchers I meet just aren't that sharp. Like you guys just aren't that smart, Mike. I don't know. To, well, <laughs> you should be. You should be a lot smarter for learning all that stuff.
2: <laughs> no, it's because you were. You were always catching pitches after the after the pitcher or calling pitches after the pitchers after already called. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's. Man, I was good. Bob's, at a big, it. Bob's a big hindsight guy. <laughs> yeah, huge hindsight nice. guy. That's Look, a, he hit. He hit that one out. You should obviously thrown of any other pitch. Come on. Nice, nice call, dummy. Yeah. <laughs> well, have you, uh, Mike, have you read Jim Bowden's book, Ball Four, that old classic? I have not. If you haven't, you should You should read it. It's, okay. It's one of my favorite baseball books. But he talks all the time about one of the things he's – it's funny how timeless it is. Like it's written – it was written in 1968, I think. But um, he's talking about coaches and their hypocrisy where he – was trying to convert into a knuckleballer because his arm was essentially, he like probably blew his elbow out was what probably happened. Um, so he's fighting with this pigeon coaches. They're like, you can't just rely on the knuckleball. So when he's throwing great and he's just throwing like amazing knuckleballs one day, they're like, keep throwing it, keep throwing. But then when he gets hit, they're like, you can't keep throwing the knuckleball. They know it's coming. Then they do the same thing with the other guys. They're like, Oh, man, that when that curveball's good, just throw it again. Just keep throwing it. Make them hit it. But then as soon as he, they throw too many curveballs and they hit one out, they're like, you can't keep throwing the curveball. They just know that it's coming. It's like, it's so funny how he highlights the same stuff that continues to happen now. It's like, you know, you throw two sliders, you double up on sliders, you throw a third slider in a row, you get a punch out. Oh, great. You know, if they can't hit it, keep throwing it. But if you triple up on sliders some other time, and they hit it to the gap, they're like, what are you doing? Triple it up on sliders? You an idiot? Like the the hypocrisy on pitch
1: callings will never go away. It's it's incredible. Great pitchers have an easy out though. You can just always blame the catcher.
2: <laughs> except always. when, you, except when you shake.
1: Except That's when we get released
0: because it's us, not you. No, no catchers ever been released for. Forget Forget us, our
1: misdeeds. Yeah, catcher's ERA needs to be a thing. Like, you should get released based on your ERA.
2: I mm-hmm. completely agree. Completely agree. Biggest – I mean, it's literally nine times more important than the catcher's batting average.
1: Are you using that because there's nine innings in the game?
2: No, I'm using it because there's nine hitters. And uh, you have to. I got
1: beat. you. Okay, and okay.
2: You're involved every pitch. On defense.
1: Well, that would be catchers batting our catchers batting average, not ERA. We'll separate them. We'll, ERA,
0: we'll create, a, we'll create a, a secret, separate stat for people. Yeah. We'll call it the, the the falsetti or something. Catchers. God. I'm gonna catchers, start my own website. Catchers, yeah, right. catcher savant. <laughs> the falsetti quotient. That'll be I it. I love <laughs> that.
2: <That's stuff. laughs>
0: So Mike, um, we're gonna wrap up here. How can people find you on the web and what do you do for catchers? Do you offer any services? Do you offer Instagram knowledge bombs? Like what do people what can people get from you on the on the web?
2: So I have my uh my things called catcher's capital. I have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's uh at Catcher's Capital, C A T C H E R S Capital with an A uh the place to go. Um and I offer private lessons one-on-one. I offer small group lessons from two to four uh, kids. And I also offer some camps, um, which are going to be scheduled here soon. Everything's going to be ran out of the, the dome in Rosemont. Um, the times will be posted on my website, catcherscapital.com, pretty, pretty soon here. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to a very, very busy winter with and meeting some, uh, some new catchers.
0: Sounds good. So if you're out there, definitely follow Mike. Obviously, he has a ton of experience, a lot of knowledge to share. And it sounds like he's a guy who is going to help you just like wade through like what's actually important and what's not. And that's, I think, really important in a coach these days because there's a lot of info on the web. Some of it's like a little bit of a red herring, like not maybe like the right thing for your age or ability. And it sounds like, again, if you're looking for, uh, you know, good catching info, like this is what you should do. This maybe not as much. I think Mike's a i like, you're the guy for that. So Mike, appreciate you. appreciate you coming on the show, man. It was good to meet you and yeah, good, good talking catching. Yeah.
2: Long time listener, first time guest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have a catching panel and get some of you clowns back on here. Uh, we
2: got to, we got to at the, uh, what is the catcher podcast, whatever it's called. <laughs> it's
1: the morning brushback. Is this the only podcast that at, matters? Oh. It's mm-hmm.
2: probably maybe the greatest podcast ever. It's mm. probably the, probably your favorite
1: podcast. I think right outside of Joe Rogan experience, this is probably this is in the top ten of iTunes last I checked. At least oh, yeah. in my at right. least in my iTunes. Right. I mean it always pops up for me.
0: It all sounds that all that sounds correct. So Bobby, why don't you send us off,
1: sir? Uh, thanks for tuning in. Join us Tuesday. We've got Ryan Brownlee from the ABCA, the National Baseball Convention Organization, joining us. So bright and early, 8 a.m. Central Time, 9 a.m. Eastern.